Tell me about your uh, fashion holy grail that you've never been able to get your hands on. Oh, that's a really good question, Tom. You know what, actually, this week I did score something which I've been after for a while. Uh, well, not that long, it only came out in 2019, but I got a lovely uh, Viz- Vizvim uh, pink jacket liner that at retail was like $3,000, like £1,800, like ludicrous for a nylon shell like like jacket and i found it on uh yahoo japan for a uh, hundred and odd quid so i'm very happy about that uh, it's lovely i wore it today it went really well fashion really great i don't know man like um i tell you what i always despair at billionaires who dress badly because it's like i just could imagine how nicely i would dress if i had <laughs> unlimited money maybe that's why you're <laughs> What's your- maybe that Maybe that's why you're not a billionaire, you know, spending it on clothes. Well, that is partly the case. My wardrobe, although extravagant, would not quite... Because I only ever buy stuff secondhand, pretty much. But even then, it wouldn't add up to a billion, even at retail. What's yours? Um, I like. I don't really have any, like, overall grails. I have a couple of things at the moment that, you know, I really want to buy. But I'm doing, you know, the 72-hour and two-week rule. Like, wait 72 yeah, yeah, hours yeah. if you still want it. Uh, one is this Raph Simmons Fred Perry collab polo on Vinted. Uh, nobody buy it, please. Um, it's like, <laughs> it has this like chunky knit collar and cuffs on the sleeves. Um, yeah, I know that. I'm, I know that stuff. That was good. Um, other than that, like I'm looking for like a good black pair of Levi's 501s. I bought a pair off Vinted that were way too small for me because I always forget that black denim is smaller. Yeah, I'm a real I'm a real sucker for coats and shoes. Like I definitely I really would love a pair of Alden Indy 401s, I think is the model number. The the boots that like Indiana Jones wears uh in oh. the they're, they're they're beautiful uh and expensive. Uh even even But even funnily enough, that. like I actually um because my wonderful girlfriend Sinead, who has been on the show, introduced me to Vinted, um, which is an incredible second-hand vintage uh, app site that you can use to buy clothes that is a hundred times better than Depop because it's cheaper, but it's perfect for me because it's a lot of like people's like mothers and wives just like clearing out wardrobes and putting stuff up, which for <laughs> me is great because there's a lot of uh, older punks and older skinheads who can't fit into their Fred Perry anymore, which I literally am the Fred <laughs> Perry shirt that I'm wearing right now. I bought off Vinted, but um, I my Doc Martens were like beat into the ground and I was looking for a new pair and I actually found a pair of Made in England 1460s that should retail for like £250. I got them for £90 and they were in mint condition. Well, I'm I'm a um, I'm a lucky man that insofar as I am within the range of Japanese men's sizing, I'm basically kind of a Japanese large. So, uh, luckily, and so so I I can buy stuff from Japan, uh, and it is way cheaper than it is here. So, top tips for listeners: uh, number one is so vintage is amazing. Um, marked M A R R K T is is a kind of consignment site for like good menswear um so it's not super cheap but you, there's basically like a lot of great brands get consigned through there and if you are a person who wears those kind of brands um you can sell stuff through there as well on consignment which is very good uh i also really like um 
vestiaire, which is yeah. a bit more like it's a bit more bit more aimed to more like formal wear stuff like suits and things but that's really nice and i've got had some amazing bargains through there i, got I a have really nice a lovely Paul Smith uh, vintage suit ysl suit sitting in my saved on vestiaire that i'm willing to pull the trigger on soon that's very good and then my last tip is really get on via a proxy because you can't buy directly anymore from them uh yahoo japan which is like the sort of japanese equivalent of ebay basically and um, you can get proxy sites. I use one called Buy-E, B-U-Y-E-E.jp. There are other ones. And basically that allows you to like buy stuff from Japan. And like you, if you're into like Japanese menswear brands that I, and, and, and also brands that make stuff for the Japanese market and you're within a Japanese, you're probably a bit too big to get good stuff from Japan. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably, I think about four or five inches too wide for anything that's yeah. made in Japan. If you're under a like forty-two inch chest, you're probably all right. Um, as for menswear stuff, anyway. So that this is this has been men's. This has been discount menswear by Matt and Tom. <laughs> I, but you know, since you are a connoisseur of Japanese clothes and Japanese tchotchkes, as I can see on your shelf behind you, it is <laughs> the perfect opportunity to talk about, as you can see from the title of this episode, Japan, Japan. Uh, also, you're welcome to Beneath the Skin. Sorry, I last week I forgot to introduce and do the <laughs> outro for the show. Uh, you're very welcome to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. And Japan is a country, as everyone knows, has a very long history with tattooing and is very influential in the world of tattooing, but also has a lot of a lot more history and a lot more complicated history with tattooing than a lot of people know. So we're doing our first mini series. Well, we've actually started. Well, I've started a mini series on the Patreon about the history of American freak shows. Uh, go check out our Patreon. But uh, this is our first public series, so we're going to do mul- a three parts about the history of tattooing in Japan. But Matt, where do we start with? The history of tattooing in Japan, because I feel like it's going to be a lot earlier than the Yakuza and the Edo period. Yeah, so you know, like just to remind everyone that we call it, we sort of tag this podcast uh, the history of everything through the history of tattooing, and I think actually Japan, as we'll come onto in the next couple of episodes, is really important to the history of tattooing, but also tattooing is really important to the history of Japan, and actually understanding the history of Japan. Um, is using tattooing to to understand it as a kind of proxy for some of the big uh, movements, certainly in kind of uh, early modern and, and modern Japan, is is a good way of doing it. Now, I am just as a caveat, right? Like, so uh, I am a I, I'm really interested in, in in Japan and Japanese culture. I'm not a kind of weebu. I'm not weeb. an anime guy. I'm not a weeb. I'm not an anime guy. I cannot speak Japanese, so I am. Reliant here on English language sources, there are amazing new research being done, particularly by my friend and colleague uh, and co-writer uh, Yoshimi Yamamoto, in who works at the uh, University of Suru, and she um, and others, but her at the centre of this network, are producing loads of great new work l- on these topics. Largely, it's currently not that easy to 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 read it if you don't speak japanese um so you know uh, as with everything that i say on this podcast you know like please don't take it as gospel until it's written down and cited and peer-reviewed go and go and check 
Um, and, and, and I think um, the other thing to say is I teach a class on uh, the kind of broad history of, of Japan uh, for my art history students. And I think a lot of them come to it with this kind of weeby approach, you know, loving manga and anime. And actually, Japan politically um, is really <laughs> is really complicated and horrible. And actually, the topic we're going to be talking about today uh, is a good proxy of some of some of those deeper stories. And 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 it underpins actually some of the things that are still going on in modern Japanese politics and Japanese culture. So, a lot of people who are Japan enthusiasts will go to Japan expecting one thing, expecting it looked like Evangelion or some anime. In reality, it's going to be a salary man calling you a slur in a, in a language you don't <laughs> understand. Yeah, there's an ama- this is really off topic, but there's an amazing Twitter, uh, Instagram feed called Shin- Shinjuku Meltdown of like people oh shibuya meltdown yeah shibuya shibuya meltdown absolutely hammered drunk on the tokyo subway anyway (laughs) right we'll come to modern japan later thomas um but actually you know um as late as the 1980s um the japanese government basically denied that there was any indigenous japanese uh there was basically kind of any indigenous japanese identity and that Japan was this kind of racially homogenized nation. Um, I'm sure that's like, true. Yeah. So this is quoting from a paper from 2015 by a scholar called Kana Yamamoto, who's a different Yamamoto from the person I was talking about earlier on. In 1989, the Japanese government reported there's no ethnic minority in Japan officially. Um, and actually, of course, that, just sort of cannot logically be true, but it's it's certainly part of this idea of modern Japan, right? It's this idea of uh, what's called Nihon Jinron, this idea of like Japan is racially homogenized, very anti-immigration, the modern state and contemporary state of Japan. Um, but actually, the I want to talk today about a group called the Ainu, um, who are a, a racialized minority um, who were colonized. Uh, officially by the Japanese in the middle part of the 19th century, although they were under kind of feudal control um, before the Meiji era. They're basically um, a people who inhabit the, traditionally inhabited at least, the northern island of Japan, Hokkaido, the bit that's up, if you could imagine the kind of geography of Japan, the bit that's up um, like near China and Russia and Korea, basically, like that top end of Japan. And um, it's difficult to know how many of them survive, uh, partly because no one's counting. <laughs> like, basically, the modern Japanese census doesn't ask people uh, their ethnic uh, minority, their ethnic identity. Um, some would say, some do say that that is a deliberate attempt to kind of erase Ainu identity. So um, there's only in two thousand eight two thousand eight. Uh, according to um, uh, Wikipedia, at least, uh, there was only about 100 speakers, native speakers of Ainu. Um, there's perhaps about 25,000 uh, Ainu people uh, officially, maybe up to about uh, 200,000. And, um, you know, basically, this, res- this is a result of um, both... Uh, death 
through to introduce diseases, but also by kind of an active process from the 19th century of forced assimilation, um, basically forcing Ainu people by uh, by force or by kind of strong encouragement to give up their Ainu identity. And as we'll circle back to, tattooing is a big part of this. Um, to foreshadow one of the reasons that tattooing becomes so taboo in uh, the 1860s, basically when Japan opens up to the West and is forced very rapidly by circumstance to become as Western and modern as possible, um, is to kind of yeah uh, uh, avoid looking backwards, and t- they can they they seek to uh, ban tattooing very quickly in order to basically wipe out uh, or in order to kind of you know appear to the world as this modern country. Tattooing felt very backwards. That affected the kind of then burgeoning stuff that we might think of as Japanese tattooing today, but it also had the kind of bonus side effect of wiping out or attempting to wipe out at least a large part of this traditional Ainu culture. So, so when yeah, we're go on. when we're looking at the Ainu, what type of, say, cultural practices, not necessarily around tattooing, but just in general, made them distinct from mainland Japan or from other people living on Hokkaido? Yeah, well, so um, the feudal uh, lords... Japan was a kind of feudal warring state for a, a long time. We might talk more about that next episode. Um, and they were first basically kind of put under Japanese rule, um, feudal rule as early as like the 14th century, maybe even the 13th century, actually. Um, but were largely kind of left alone to their own devices. They were a traditional hunter-gathering society. So described actually by some European colonizers, and again, because of how quickly they were assimilated or wiped out, a lot of the accounts we have of their tattooing and of their other practices comes from European writers. Um, In fact, there's no even real good Japanese language source about them until the 1700s um, in terms of their cultural practices. But basically, they're a kind of um, uh, indigenous, described as Aboriginal hunting, fishing culture, right? they are living, um, you know, a very kind of traditional set of um, uh, uh, of, of, of practices. Are living off the land, are hunting, mm. are fishing, are living in fairly kind of um, you know normative structures, and yeah, thought of because of that, and talked about very straightforwardly as as being quote unquote primitive or backward or barbarian, and at the point when. Um, Hokkaido was officially colonized by the modern Japanese state in the 1800s. Um, the, the actual description of the Ainu was was something like, you know, worse than dogs. They were thought of as kind of almost subhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, they're, they're, their tattooing practices are, I guess, to uh, really simplify it, more visually um, reminiscent, more kind of. Uh, you know, evocative of the kind of tattooing we might we might think of as coming from the Pacific, um, as it's it's black, it's heavy, and actually it's largely um, well, actually in the in the records that we have, really exclusively on women. So in the same way as somewhere like um, uh, uh, Fiji, it's this exclusively female practice. And as I said, we, it's hard to kind of um, really, really get our head around how old it is. Um, however, there's been some really interesting archaeology being done. Um, 
Again, there's a really the, the best English language source on this actually is a book that came out a long time ago, 1982. Still probably the best book on the history of Japanese tattooing. It's called Irizumi, The Pattern of Dermatography in Japan by R. W. R. Van Gulik um, from 1982. If anyone's interested in these long histories of Japanese tattooing, I really recommend people get hold of that book and I'll be you know, referring to it quite a lot. Um, but basically, ancient Japan, prehistoric Japan, back to like at least 100,000 years, is a period that's called the Jomon period, J-O-M-O-N. And from the Jomon period, as with European archaeology, we are finding um, pots, ceramics in particular, that survive archaeologically. And actually, one of the things that some of those clay uh, objects display is like potential tattooed figures, potential tattooed people. So, you know, we end up getting these... And it, it's also important to know that in the Jomon period, you look at the clay pots and I there mean, is... I'm sure that's, that's terrible Japanese pronunciation. As I said, I don't speak Japanese, but I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Jomon. <laughs> um, but if you look at, there is, there's distinctive um, interperiods within the Jomon period, and you can look at the development yeah. of clay pots in terms of like... Some of them will have higher walls and a higher neck versus like a more squat, thicker neck. Also, these figures that these clay objects as well that you talked about, they there is a artistic evolution of them over time as well. I funnily enough, I actually did some research for this episode as well. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but but also, you know, th- this is interesting and it's it's very, as I said, sort of controversial, actually, exactly to what degree. Jomon history and Ainu history overlap, certainly what um to what degree culturally, ethnically, racially, um, uh, um the southern islands of Japan, the people who live there, and and Jomon periods overlap. It's it's complicated and, and not, I guess, um something we can go into deeply here, but it does seem that, you know, although we don't have uh, really any kind of um ancient surviving records of Jomon tattooing, as we've talked about before on this podcast, like it seems reasonable to infer that some kind of tattooing was going on. Um, if if listeners are interested actually in in this, there was a really amazing recent project called the Jomon Project um, that was done by uh, an amazing Japanese blackwork artist called Taku Oshima, who kind of reinvented or imagined what. Um, what Jomon tattooing may have looked like based on these designs that we have from archaeological sources. Um, and there, as you know, in the same way as we talked about uh, in a previous episode about Viking tattooing, it is entirely imagined, imagined here, but historically mm. literate in a really interesting way. I don't know if you want to have a quick, like Google Tom of like um, of Jomon project or Jomon tribe project, it gets called as well. And have a look at some of that work that um, Taku Ashiba was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe like describe it to the listeners. <laughs> yeah, so like very large, like heavy black work, like very thick lines. Uh, one thing that I want to ask is, I know we spoke about it with uh, Aaron Dieter Wolf, who that episode's now out on the free feed. What is the process at which they were applying these tattoos? Well, for the Jomon stuff, we just don't know, as I said, because we're really working on kind of supposition. Mm. Um, but in terms of the Ainu, which we'll come to, it seems that actually most of the editing was done with uh, more of a sort of scarification method with it using knives. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So, yeah, like, so the first, the first, like, English, or sorry, European 
discussion we have of the Ainu uh, tattoos come from um, a uh, Jesuit missionary, uh, a guy called Louis Froix or Froes um, from 1565, um, and other reports from like Dutch and Portuguese uh, explorers um, who basically describe. Um, uh, seeing these people, particularly the women who have their faces marked in a particular way. Um, one uh, piece that stands out, and this is quoted by Gulick, is from a Dutch explorer called V-Race. And he says, quote, the women are not as dark as the men. Some have their hair cut short and all around so as to keep their eyes free. Others grow it long and bind it up like the Javanese women. Their eyebrows and lips are painted black. Um, another later source, 1796. Um, I knew women have their mouths all around and their forearms up to the wrists painted blue or tattooed. And this is a practice which, you know, despite the best efforts of um, uh, the Japanese government to eradicate, did actually survive in some form right into the early part of the 20th century. Um, you can see photographs actually from um, the immediate post-Meiji period, this period after the 1858 um, moment when Japan was opened up to the West for the first time in a couple of hundred years. And the Ainu were of particular kind of interest to photographers and explorers who went up into those northern islands and started kind of documenting um, visually these cultures. So you can see photographs of Ainu women. And the most striking thing about Ainu tattooing and the most kind of obviously visible because it's the most visible in um, the photographs is these big black tattoos around the mouth like almost mm. tattooed like um like smiles you know like this yeah, is kind yeah. of the the very unique thing that people think about when they're talking about i knew i knew tattooing hey are you enjoying the show if you really like beneath the skin and you want to help support us you can do so on patreon for little as five quid a month you can help make this show possible help us buy research materials so if you like the show and you want to support us consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche deep topics you don't want to miss out on and honestly the chance to kind of decide what thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity subscribe chuck us a few quid don't miss out on this chance to ruin thomas's body forever everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo we all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. 
Sonoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saladerm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saladerm products or for more information. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, pictures of it right now, and yeah, it's like very thick heavy black tattooing around the face there's kind of like almost like binding tattoo around the hands and the wrists onto the forearm uh combined with you know traditional or ceremonial dress but yet like it i it's funny from doing research for something else i'm working on with it's not completely unrealistic to think that maybe there is obviously the influence of Polynesian tattooing because as we all know the Polynesians were the greatest sailors ever so yeah and there's there's lots of discussion about you know both in um, ancient sources actually um, one of the painted peoples who I talk about in my book uh, based in Chinese sources are potentially the Ainu um, as far as we can discern that from Chinese history and so actually, to what degree Ainu tattooing and all of tattooing in that region, you know, in the in the kind of Pacific uh, and in um, the southern parts of, of China, in Vietnam, and to what degree they're anthropologically connected, like really has to be speculative because we just simply mm. don't have those records. Um, mm. But yeah, what we can be sure of is that, yeah, like tattooing is a big, important part of Ainu culture. In fact, again, one of the, one of the things that... Um, uh, Ainu women were specifically encouraged to do um, to assimilate was like move from a Hokkaido or move away from their hunting and fishing lifestyles. And one of the things that was reported about them refusing to do that is because they didn't want to give up the, the the tattooing, particularly the facial tattooing. Now, there's the smile. The smile kind of form is the is the form um, that's most uh, obvious. In Gulick, he actually um, documents a kind of range of of different patterns some of the women have dots around their mouths some of them have um just outlines um and again as with all these things it's very difficult to properly kind of have a a good understanding of what these quote unquote mean um partly because you know often as we talked about with Maya Sierluk Jakobsen where something similar happened with um tattooing in the arctic outsiders uh Go and ask the wrong questions, basically, um, and, and, and try and kind of fit um, fit reasoning or, or, or understanding of these practices into a kind of uh, a worldview or a, 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 a magical system that they understand. But basically, as far as we can tell, you know, um, as in the Arctic and as in other places in the Pacific, actually, this tattooing on women um, seems to happen. Uh, around about 14 years of age, it seems to be coincident with kind of maturity. Mm. Um, it uh, seems to be regional, so different parts of um, of the island and different kind of subgroupings of Ainu have different um, patterns. So it may be a kind mm. of affiliative practice, and basically, it also seems to be linked, as with the um, uh, Inuit myth to like the creation myth of the people. Mm -hmm. So again, kind of citing um, Van Gulik here, 
Uh, quote, one of the deities in the Ainu pantheon was believed to have been tattooed. This particular deity was the sister of Aona Kamui, um, who descended from the sky as tutor of the Ainu. His divine sister accompanied him to teach the Ainu women their duties, and being herself tattooed, she introduced the custom and taught them how to tattoo before she returned to the divine abodes in the sky. It's not quite clear who this sister could be, since the name is not precisely known, um, and, there, and sources kind of disagree. But it does seem, as in you know, as in the um, Inuit creation myths, that the tattooed woman is a really important figure in the kind of you know pantheon and, and, and religion. Also, as in like places like Fiji and elsewhere in the Pacific, the patterns also seem to be linked to animals and kind of totemism okay. to some degree, right? So. Um, I want to read you this. This is a this is from a lot of what we know about the Ainu actually is from a the, the work of a guy called John Batchelor. Okay. Um who was who was a Victorian uh, explorer basically late 19th century, one of the first um English language sources to go and kind of properly talk about the Ainu. But bear in mind um he's quite interested in, you know, stopping them doing this as a kind of Christianizing practice. So he says Here's a quote, surprise. There's a surprise. So it, in in uh, in Bachelor's book, uh, the Ainu and their folklore from 1901, uh, he says, uh, "I'm trying to do my best Victorian gentleman voice." That's the Ainu women tattoo their lips and arms in some districts. Their foreheads has been reported often. The men, however, never tattoo themselves. It's an absurd habit and does not add to the beauty of the people. Nor have I yet been able to get any simple, direct, and sensible reason as to how this custom arose or why it's kept up. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, well, once again, Christians going to countries that aren't Christian have one thing in mind, and that's stopping women from doing what they've probably been doing for thousands do. exactly. of years. Exactly. Um, so he can't get any good reason. He does describe the process. So this is at least the process that was happening um, at the time that he went there. He says, the tattoo is of a bluish black color, and the process of getting in is both simple and painful. Some birch bark is taken and put in a pan to soak. Next, a fire is made and an iron pot hung over it. After this, more birch bark is brought and burnt under the pot until the bottom is well blackened. When this has been thoroughly done, a woman takes a sharp knife, cuts a few gashes into the part to be tattooed, then takes some of the soot from the pot on her finger and rubs it in well. Then she takes a piece of cloth, dips it into the decoration in the pot, and, when, and with it washes the part operated upon. In children, the centre of the upper lip receives the first touches, then the lower lip, and so on alternately till the tattoo reaches almost from ear to ear. So it's this kind of scarificatory process, basically. Okay, okay. And just w one question, like, obviously, anyone who's familiar with the geography of Japan, Hokkaido is it's the northernmost point. It's also very cold during the winter. Do we have any, like, preserved remains of Ainu women with tattoos? Not as far as I know. I didn't. Um, I haven't found any or seen any of those come up. I guess um, it's possible that they may well be found. Um, but actually, as I said, it's sort of for political reasons, as in you know, as in um, Russia. It's sort of these ancient histories and and, and in China, these kind of pan-ethnic, pan-indigenous um, histories of countries, modern nation states that present themselves as ethnically homogenous and kind of you know, almost racially determinative, those kind of studies become very, very 
you know, almost taboo. There's not a huge amount of interest in them because they complicate certain amounts of storytelling. You know, there's lots of good books um, going right back, actually, uh, to the middle of this century, but even recently about racism and the Ainu. And it, they're a particularly interesting case study. Um, and I think a lot of the, as we'll talk about, the kind of taboos about tattooing that arise um, in the 19th and 20th century are at least, if not directly, certainly in some senses derived from a kind of sense that tattooing is this barbaric practice that only happens by these um, yeah. nation, by these northern people. So I was talking about the about the animal myths. So um, one of the myths um, is to do with frogs. Um, and, uh, again, this is from Bachelor, although it has been discussed in other sources. Um, he says, it's curious to remark in connection with tattooing that the Ainu fancy they can see tattoo marks on frogs resembling those made on women. Um, the following legend concerns the origin of these creatures is peculiar to say the least. And it tells us that their first parent was neither more nor less than the woman who was cursed by God and had her bodily form change on account of her wickedness. He metamorphosed her as punishment and her human spirit was turned into that of a demon. All that was left to show that it had once been a woman were very slight traces of tattoo marks. So there's this idea that like, you know, tattoos are kind of, you know, the marks on frogs are, are indicative that they are kind of cursed and, okay. um, you know, uh, metamorphosed uh, women. You know, again, let's talk about, <laughs> the control of women and the relationship yeah. of religion to the subjugation of of women um it's it's really really um uh as i said kind of interesting even how you know as in other places in the world tattooing was so kind of you know every i knew woman was tattooed and so basically sources sort of stopped mentioning it um and even even like early Japanese anthropologists like aren't really that interested in properly recording it. Like one of the earliest sources that exists on on the Ainu tattooing in Japanese is isn't until 1785. Isn't until like the late 18th century. Um, so and, uh, you know, ju- just with the with the gap of these records, is it a case that there was? active at the time erasure of any written records or maybe at a retroactive erasing of evidence from say a different period they went back and decided to get rid of stuff or is it just that no i think it's just that these these records aren't you know there's not a lot of written records from the ainu themselves of course because they are uh, are not um, a a culture who were practicing writing on uh, on paper or whatever um and actually yeah like in a way, as I said, the the the, the um, Japanese feudal forces first kind of moved up into Hokkaido uh, in the 14th century, or or even slightly a little bit slightly earlier, late late 13th century. And actually, part of that process was like, well, actually, we'll just the, we we want to use these these lands, you know, for for trade, but actually, we'll just leave them alone. You know, they're sort of left alone largely um, uh, up until basically the modern world and, and increasing threats from Russia in particular make it strategically useful for the Japanese um, and certainly the, the, you know, the Tokugawa and then certainly the Edo governments to actually set, settle Hokkaido um, and to annex it. Like it wasn't formally annexed until 1869. Um, and instantly, as I said, like 
Well, I was going to say, and, and, and instantly the message is, and like with colonial uh, expeditions all over the place, the justification for this kind of taking over of Ainu lands and the subjugation of their practices and their forced assimilation of, um, of Ainu people into mainstream modern Japanese life is like these people aren't are barely human. You know, they are backwards, they are barbarian, they are um, not living in the way that we expect them to live. Um, I mean, again, I want to sort of, maybe this is another good example. This is from 1892, again from, from Bachelor. Um, he says, I mean, it's, it's just disgusting, really, but it's kind of indicative. Um, the Ainu women appear at first sight astonishingly ugly, dirty, and thoroughly spiritless. Pitably miserable and unattractive do they look. They have dark, sooty-coloured tattoo marks on the upper and lower lips, and sometimes a line of the same disfiguring ornamentation across the foreheads. Various patterns are engraved on the backs of their grimy hands. Their feet are unshod, their hair matted and unkempt, reaches down to the shoulders in front and is cut in a kind of crescent shape behind. In addition to this, their garments are slovenly, untidy, and their countenances are, are sullen and dejected. It's not perhaps surprising that some of those who come into contact with these people and after a very slight acquaintance with them should go away disgusted with the opinion it would be no great loss to humanity if the Ainu were to become extinct. But that's not the writer's view. <laughs> Right. And then he says, and this is also indicative, it's true that, intellectually speaking, a nobler race, the Japanese, is dispossessing the Ainu. And his disappearance or absorption is possibly being rendered necessary by the wonderful events that have taken place in Japan of late. Uh, but for all that, the Ainu is worthy not only of pity, but of sympathy and help. Right. So you can see there, right, like Europeans channel and actually bring scientific racism to Japan. There's some really interesting work on how, you know, the Japanese are plenty, plenty racist against indigenous people, not just in, in, in Hokkaido before Europeans arrive. But as soon as Westerners arrive and, and bring to them, you know, scientific racism, <laughs> um, they, uh, they very quickly kind of work out how to make that make sense for their own um okay yeah, for yeah, their yeah, own yeah. kind of indigenous identities you know like and actually that again that quote from bachelor is really indicative because he's sort of saying the europeans in a way found it very hard to make to, to initially you know, tessellate european ideas about the racial superiority of white people with what they found in japan which was this culture which had been separated for centuries which yeah, was yeah, yeah. Which was organised, which was military, militarily powerful, which had complex religion, which had beautiful art and aesthetics, and of course, like the adjustment there is like, well, actually, the, the Japanese are, are, are like Europeans, and in fact, the Japanese lean very heavily into that themselves because it helps them avoid colonialization themselves. But this northern part of the territory. Uh, they're not like us at all. And in fact, the Japanese even agree. And the fact they're racist against them sort of explains just how like Europeans the Japanese are, right? But also on the flip side, now I want to ask, obviously Japan is very well known for having a very rich artistic culture, like every kind of culture around the world. Um, what is, because of the complexity of Japanese visual culture, like particularly as you're moving uh, past the introduction of Shinto into Japan, like I'm kind of surprised that there isn't some sort of representation of tattooing in mainland Japanese and it's just the Ainu. What where what are they doing instead? 
Well, actually, you know, because um, again, this is sort of something we have to discern from uh, from, for example, Chinese records. The the, the pre modern and certainly pre um, feudal history of Japan is contested, but tattooing basically from what we know about it in 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 um in ancient japan is largely punitive it's largely penal right so oh, okay. the first mentions of tattooing in japan are like right back in uh in, you know sorry about tattooing in japan are right back in like first century chinese sources um but those those descriptions from from about 100 ad right there through to kind of 500 or so ad are about punishment tattooing so it's really clear that if in the main part of uh, you know the, the 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 feudal culture of Japan, tattooing is stigmatized pretty early, right? Like used taking from taken from China, where again, um, I haven't talked about this on the podcast, have we? We should do we'll do an episode about China, um, but again, like in China, in China, the, the Han Chinese don't have indigenous tattooing. And they talk about their barbarian neighbours, quote-unquote barbarian neighbours, um, as being tattooed people. Um, so because of the kind of very early influence and settlement of, of Chinese uh, thought and Chinese you know, um, uh, 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 religion and ideology, that kicks in in Japan very, very early. And again, you know, it, it does also help. You know, it helps kind of demarcate these racialized categories um yeah we i mean i think we should we should talk we should talk in more detail in the next episode about how those particular kind of uh cultures from the from the main islands feed in right to to the contemporary ideas of tattooing the 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 1700s plus basically um ideas of tattooing but yeah there's other than you know the the jomon and and deep prehistories and in chinese records do suggest that actually there was, you know, in 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 the past, in the ancient past, there was there was male and female tattooing happening. There was um, this kind of, you know, before living memory, before historical memory set of practices. But it's very very hard uh, to, to to make sense of this. I mean, also as I said, particularly, and this is something that again Gulick identifies the actual kind of origin of of, of the Japanese people and 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 how we disambiguate China, Korea, Manchuria, that kind of bit of Russia that's near Japan and um and Japan itself is very, very complicated. And you know, again, tattooing gets to be part of that story because if you don't believe that Japanese people are tattooed, you're not going to kind of join the dots up between these ancient records and the contemporary it's Every almost moment. like you know delineating people based on arbitrary uh, national uh, boundaries is uh, not actually good for history. Not good for history. I mean, you know, there are there are almost these sort of quasi mythical or, or 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 you know legendary spaces that get talked about, which are likely to have been in in Japan in Chinese sources, which get called the lands of of Wo Wo or spelt W A, but pronounced I think more like Wo. Um, which in the ancient Chinese legends have kind of perspectives of tattooing and um, you know have these kind of you know in the same ways we have in prehistoric. British accounts and Roman accounts, stories of you know tattooed ancients and tattooed barbarians and stuff. It's really impossible, as we talked about with Aaron, actually, to disambiguate how much of that is true and how much of that is false and how much of that is is somewhere between. We can use those that uh, Joe Mornier pottery, you know, which actually 
is an era which covers, you know, Jomon people seem to have lived all over modern Japan. Um, how much of that, you know, how much of those representations are tattooing is really difficult to know. Um, I mean, I should also say, I think we mentioned it up the top, but this also applies to other racialized subgroups in Japan, particularly Okinawa and Taiwan in the southern part, you know, the, the bit of Japan that's closer to the Pacific, um, which have their own tattoo traditions, their own histories of colonial, colonialism by China and Japan over the centuries, and also of, of racial, you know, cleansing, so to speak. And I think, but you know, I think it's interesting because my friend um, and colleague did ask me when we were talking about Ink Master and, and Japanese tattooing. He said, like, why do you? Why can you say Japanese tattooing? Like, it would be really weird to say, you know, um, to say that about any other uh, place in history because, you know, there must be regional specificity, there must be historical continuation. And actually, the truth is, like, what we call and think of as Japanese tattooing, as we'll come on to in the next episode, is really new, like, really recent, like 1700s. It's not, it's not ancient, ancient. Some of its visual language comes from older visual sources, particularly from China, but that practice doesn't seem to be attested before about 1700. And so modern Japanese tattooing, because the modern Japanese state becomes more homogenous and becomes homogenized politically, that tattooing is Japanese tattooing. And actually, these ancient traditions have been almost not forgotten so much as kind of erased and certainly in the popular imagination effaced from the idea of what Japanese tattooing looks like. I think that's why you know the Jomon project that we talked about earlier is so important because it does try and complicate these histories of Japanese tattooing in a way that that I think people you know um uh need to be aware of. I think it's you know that's almost kind of like a perfect kind of narrative point to maybe put a pin in this episode that you know in a similar way to both the politics and national identity of Japan, the aesthetic identity of its tattooing has been forcibly or otherwise homogenized into this one idea that looks a certain way and is represented and perceived in a certain way by the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to go out and get Ainu tattooing, right? Because as with tattooing in, in, in other places in the world, as we talked about with um, Maya, it has this um, spiritual and cultural intersection with 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 life you know with with marriage with with the spiritual world with um the kind of relationships to nature that these tattoos um represent and engage with so i i i i i, I don't and but, you know, there are there are people who claim i new identity and who have i new identity um and and it will be up to them to 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 revive this practice and that's why i think the jomon stuff is super interesting because that is a you know is a kind of extinct tattoo culture like we, we, you know, which can be imagined and, and and re uh repurposed for kind of postmodern or contemporary ends so yeah i think we should like you know we should lament i suppose the the the, the um eradication of uh of ainu tattooing and of okinawan tattooing a lot of the work that yashimi's doing particularly in okinawa actually has been was about documenting um and and trying to kind of you know make sense of these dying or dead indigenous traditions but we, we i i i don't want anyone who's listening to this to go okay i'm going to go out and get my get a big black smile tattooed on my face to kind of you know re to get authentic japanese tattooing because that comes with its own with its own problems right yeah and you know 
I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. You know, please stay tuned. We are going to talk Thanks. about more contemporary Japanese tattooing as we move into the Edo period, the Meiji Restoration, and beyond into contemporary sources in the next two episodes. But once again, I want to say thank you very much for listening to the show. We have been Beneath the Skin. Uh, I am Thomas O'Mahony. You can find me online at got it at Guinies. You can find Matt at Matt Lauder everywhere. You, If you enjoyed the show <laughs> and you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear episodes like this early, along with our bonus episodes, you can support us on Patreon for as little as five quid a month for 15 quid. If you're feeling extra juicy, you can get a signed copy of Matt's book. Uh, painted people the history of humanity in 21 tattoos uh, i said it right for the first time because i said it wrong last <laughs> uh the last episode i was hosting um you can find it or you can find it on all good bookshops and you can find us online at beneath skin or beneath skin pod on everything you can and i'm gonna as i said i'm gonna recommend if anyone wants to sort of read along or, or follow these stories um, on the history of tattooing in Japan, do get a hold of Gulick's book. It's it's old now, but you know most of the scholarship sort of hold more or less holds up. Um, I'm also really indebted for today uh, uh, to a book called Race Resistance and the Ainu of Japan by Richard M. Siddle, um, which came out in 1996, and the conversations that I've had um, with Yoshimi Yamamoto, who who is the greatest uh, living scholar of of Japanese, uh, Yoshimi, come history. on the show. So, and, and it's really her, she, her English is probably not good enough, sadly to come on the show. I think she'd be, she'd feel very anxious about coming on. Um, alas, we, we can try. The other thing to say is as well, if people want to listen to those, uh, read those John bachelor books, um, that I quoted from, uh, they're both, they're on, uh, they're on the internet archive, the I knew in their folklore, um, uh, is one and uh the other one is called uh i knew uh what's it called i knew and religion i think is the title of it uh but uh in any case yeah like we have barely scratched the surface here of some very complicated stuff i think um if you're really interested in oh that uh, that book is called uh it's called religion superstitions and the general history of the hairy aborigines of japan um, which gives you again a sense of the the, the, the the disgraceful kind of colonialist tone of this stuff but yeah um, so so we've scratched the surface hopefully people are interested and um, you know lots more to go and read uh, if you're interested <laughs> <laughs>